0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church,
1: recorded at one of our worship services.
0: Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewash wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I do not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if the spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, whereas you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young men, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Then he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lesius, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when it came upon them and with their soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen." And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Caesarea, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be gathered in Herod's Praetorium. These are the true words of the living God.
1: Thanks, Anna. Good morning, everyone. My name is Winston, and I'm one of the elders in the second congregation. I'm excited to be uh, going to preaching God's word to you today. So let's start with a prayer. Father God, we give thanks to you for this morning that we can be gathered to hear your word. We ask that you use me to preach it and to open our hearts to receive it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. So, uh, I have titled my sermon today, The Protection You Need. So what comes to mind when you think about the word protection? Honestly, in the context of us living in Singapore, protection is probably not something that we think about very often. Until we go on holiday to some uh, foreign country, and then we Google frightfully about whether that country is safe for tourists. Or maybe if you're big and tough, you say, I don't need protection, I am the protection. Or otherwise, in the context of religion, we might think of protection only when we are looking to avoid uh, disease or disaster. But is that what protection means in the context of our Christian life? Is it just some kind of vague, occasional notion of avoiding harm? Do we need any protection at all living in natural, disaster free, a medically advanced and low-crime Singapore. I hope to show us that living as Christians in Singapore today, we need God's protection as much as ever and that God will indeed protect us. So I have three points to make. Number one, that God protected Paul to live out God's call over his life. Number two, God will also protect you to live out God's call over your life. And number three, God's protection is the protection you need. So to my first point, uh, that God protected Paul to live out God's call over his life. In our our passage today, we see Paul being persecuted uh, as he lived out God's call over his life to preach the gospel. And Paul is certainly no stranger to persecution for the sake of the gospel. By the time of our passage, he has faced down one angry, violent mob after another, been thrown into prison, been stoned to the point of death. But each time, God had preserved his life so that he could continue the work of preaching the gospel. And after going through so much, one might be inclined to think that, you know, Paul is up for retirement, but there's no let-up, and Paul is in this familiar territory of persecution again. He's bound, beaten, and facing an angry mob that wants to kill him. So imagine for a moment that you were poor in that situation. What would have been going through your mind? Would you have been full of faith uh, that God would deliver you once more? Or would you have thought, this is one time too many, and you're going to run out of luck now? Having read the end of the passage, we know that God protected Paul once more. But I think just saying that you know, God protected Paul, without actually studying the details of how God did so, can be a rather bland statement that can actually obscure how marvelous God's protection is. So let's try and understand better how exactly God protected Paul. So our passage begins uh, in Acts 22.30 with the Roman tribune, who is basically the Roman governmental authority in the situation. And he wants to know why is there this angry mob that is baying for Paul's blood. So the tribune unbinds Paul, and he sets him down before this council of Jewish leaders, which includes the high priest Ananias. So Paul then proceeds to give an account or a defense of himself before this council. To put it mildly, Ananias is unimpressed, and he orders uh, at chapter 23, verse 2, that Paul be struck on his mouth. Paul can sense that his plan to defend himself is not really working, and he starts to pivot his plan, somewhat cunningly, You see, in the process of engaging with this council, Paul had come to realize that this council is not quite a unified one, as it actually consists of two different groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And for our purposes, we just need to understand uh, that the Pharisees believed that the dead would be resurrected, while the Sadducees did not. To be clear, the Pharisees were not Christians, but they did have their own beliefs that the dead would be resurrected. But Paul, in so far as he believed that Christians would be resurrected when Christ comes again, he could technically still say that he was a Pharisee. So Paul then begins to divert attention away from himself. And he says in verse 6, Oh, I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee, because I believe in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So this appears to become some kind of a sleight of hand, right? An assertion that, He's on trial because he's a Pharisee, and then he then turns the whole uproar around him into a dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it kind of works, because the Pharisees now say, well, we find nothing wrong with this Paul. And to be clear, I'm not actually saying that God protected Paul by teaching him how to perform this sleight of hand. The text doesn't seem to be too clear on the point, and there are certainly commentators who criticize this as a somewhat disingenuous act, but I've unpacked this a little so that we can get a better understanding of what actually happened and the kind of the dynamics of the situation here. But what we would note is that this sleight of hand only seems to work in part um, because it still leads to a violent dissension that seems to endanger Paul uh, to the point that a tribune has to get soldiers to take Paul and put him into the barracks for fear that he will otherwise be torn to pieces by the mob. And it gets worse. So verses 12 to 15 tell us of a group of more than 40 Jewish men who have become so enraged that they make an oath to kill Paul. And it's, just not, and it's not just a casual, you know, I'm so angry, I swear I will kill you kind of oath. But a far more serious is either you die or I die kind of oath. They swear neither to eat, nor drink, until they, until they kill Paul. And they don't just make this oath in private. They hold themselves accountable by going to the Jewish leaders to declare this oath before them. Um, and they even enlist their help to perform the oath. And basically, the scheme, scheme is to trick the tribune to bring Paul before the Jewish leaders, and then these oath-makers would ambush and kill Paul along the way. So we have a violent, murderous mob and we have an evil, murderous plot involving high-ranking elements of Jewish society. Odds, they are stacked against Paul. But it's odds even a thing when God is involved. So if God wants Paul alive, it could have been 4,000 men, right? And not a hair on Paul's head would have been harmed. So let's see how does God uh, protect Paul in this situation. first, He engineers it such that Paul's nephew finds out about the plot, as verse 16 tells us. And then second, as you see in verses 17 to 22, God moves the centurions to be willing to take Paul's nephew to the tribune. And then he moves the tribune again, so that the tribune is actually willing to listen to Paul's nephew explain the plot and actually believe Paul's nephew. From what we know of history, Roman tribunes will not appear predisposed to listen to uh, random nephews of random Jewish prisoners. And third, as is narrated from verses 22, 23 to 33, God moves the tribune to safely dispatch Paul away to Felix, the governor in Caesarea, whom we can understand as uh, representing the next higher governmental, uh, Roman governmental authority in this situation. But maybe what is the most marvelous, though, is the manner in which Paul was transported to Caesarea. So remember the evil plot to kill Paul? It had mustered 40-plus men. And what was this security detail that was assigned to protect Paul from the plot? 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and uh, 200 spearmen. Some historians suggest that this could well have been half of the tribune's garrison. And it almost seems ridiculous, right? to send half of your uh, garrison just to protect a nobody Jew, one that the Jewish elites themselves wanted uh, dead. And nothing is said about the fighting ability uh, of those 40-plus men, but we can see that they were definitely outnumbered by more than 10 times by professional soldiers. Now, I had not highlighted this earlier, but in verse 11, when Paul had been brought into the barracks, Jesus had come to Paul, stood by Paul, and told him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jer- Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is actually a very tender and priceless moment, as Jesus was lovingly comforting and encouraging Paul in this dark moment. But notice that Jesus was also telling Paul that he would surely live. If God still had plans for Paul ahead to go to Rome to preach the gospel, then surely he will make it out of these barracks. In that light, this uh, Roman army that had been assembled to serve as Paul's private security detail, it's like God's way of making a point to us, almost making a song and dance out of it, if I can use the expression in, in a positive way. And it is, it is this, if God is going to protect you, he will more than make sure that you are protected. So yes, Paul was technically a prisoner of Rome, but God can use the unbelieving to protect his believers. And there's also a little detail of some note. So you see that the tribune, he actually provided mounds or horses for Paul instead of some kind of death march on foot for Paul. So the tribunal actually even seemed to be treating Paul with some dignity. So I hope we can see that God protected Paul But why did God go out of his way to send his protection in this form? Certainly because he loved Paul, but there was another specific reason. God protected Paul in that specific situation so that he could go on to Rome and preach the gospel, to testify also in Rome, um, as verse 11 records for us. And actually we know from various other passages such as Acts 9 and 15 that Paul had a specific call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the people in Rome would be Gentiles. So in other words, God protected Paul so that he could live out God's call over his life. Uh, And in this instance, it was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was my first point, right? So my second point, God will also protect you to live out God's call over your life. So in the same way, we can rest assured that God will also protect us so that we can also live out God's call over our lives. See, the God that Paul served those 2,000 plus years ago is the same God that you and I worship today in 2023, whose character, purpose, and goodness has not changed. And as we have seen, just seen from how Christ came to Paul in that dark moment in the barracks, God is not some kind of detached slave master who just gives you a command, and then dumbs you and uh, expects you to carry it out as a faceless minion. You can trust then that whatever persecution you face as you live out God's call over your life, God will be with you, and he will protect you in it too. So perhaps at this point, you might be intellectually happy to agree with me. Yeah, God protects. It uh, doesn't sound too controversial, right? But you are emotionally and you are spiritually unmoved you might be thinking, "Well, this all sounds great, and it's most probably true, but it's irrelevant to me, because I don't think God is calling me to do something that will involve some kind of violent mob banging for my head and 40-plus men swearing that they will kill me." So in that sense, uh, it might be easier for Christians who are facing some kind of direct, open-faced or mortally dangerous persecution for being a Christian to see that passage as an assurance of God's protection. That God will protect them in a way that is similar to how he protected Paul. Deliverance from whatever might be the equivalent of a violent mob and an assassination squad to an analogous situation. So that could include Christians who are worshipping God in countries that are violently opposed to them being Christians. Or even Christians whose family environments are very hostile to their faith. But what if we are not facing that kind of persecution? What if I'm not preaching the gospel in some hostile, dangerous land? Is God's protection irrelevant or unnecessary then? Not so. And the reason is this. So long as we are living out God's call over our lives, we will face persecution. And so long as we face persecution, his protection will be irrelevant and necessary. So let me try to unpack this a bit more. So the starting point is this. In order to understand how God will protect us, we need to know what is God's call over our lives. Uh, As maybe when we are conscious of his call, then we will begin to see better how God is protecting us as we live out his call. So then, what is God's call over your life? When we think about the phrase, God's call, God's calling, we might have a tendency to associate that with a great, dramatic sort of summons over a person's life to go and serve as a missionary or maybe a volunteer in some war-torn country, which, to be clear, can certainly happen and are indeed noble callings. But I think to think only in those terms would be too narrow an understanding of God's call over our lives. The truth is, our primary calling is not even to any sort of specific vocation or job, but it is is to something even more fundamental. It it would be the context within which we would serve in any such vocation or a job. And what is this primary calling? In Romans 1, 6, um, after a brief exposition, sorry, I mean Romans chapter 1, verse 6, after a brief exposition of the gospel, Paul says we are included amongst those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 43.10 says that we were chosen by God so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So our primary calling It's not a call to do, but a call to be, to be a follower of Christ, a child of God, to know Him and be in relationship with Him, to live our lives for God in step with the Holy Spirit, enjoying and honouring Him with our lives. Maybe when you hear me describe our calling as Christians in that way, You might be inclined to think of our calling uh, as a state of being, that it is about a state of mind that you go into, you know, inside the confines of a dark room with flickering candles, right? That is certainly not the case, and it's actually quite the opposite, because the Christian life is meant to be lived out uh, externally in connection with the people around us. To the extent that Jesus said that the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, This means that we are to live out our primary calling in connection with those around us, our families, friends, colleagues, and whoever else might be in our life. And quite unavoidably, as we seek to live out uh, our calling amongst people, we will face persecution from those that do not like us living as a Christian around them. Yes, in our Singaporean context, it is generally unlikely to be violent. And in fact, I will even venture so far as to say that in the ethos of our day, where people like to portray and brand themselves as uh, tolerant, inclusive, we might even find that people around us might be a little hesitant to openly persecute you in your face, directly against your identity as a Christian. Although that can certainly happen, and that does happen. But Um, So it might not even be persecution against their identity per se, but persecution because you are a Christian and you seek to live as a Christian around them. And to be clear, I'm not equating all forms of persecution as equal in intensity or in suffering. But I am trying to highlight that the non-physically violent and perhaps more indirect form of persecution is persecution still. And that we face it often even, but we might not become aware of it after a while because we're so used to it. But God still sees and he still cares about that and he will protect us in that. So what could such persecution look like? So it could truly take many forms, perhaps due to its more concealed nature. And so maybe it comes in a form of persecution at the workplace, when you, at the leading of the Holy Spirit, take a stand against a dishonest industry practice. And everyone around you sighs, rolls their eyes and resolves to avoid working with you. Or it could be the persecution that comes in the context of our relationships. And one of the great debates of our times uh, is sexual ethics. And Christian views on that are often portrayed as bigoted, intolerant, Perhaps you have been told, directly or indirectly, even when you weren't trying to force your Christian beliefs on anyone, that this is 2003, and you should be really, really ashamed of yourself for having such beliefs. Or because you have those beliefs, you are made to feel undesirable as a romantic partner. And yet you can hit even closer home in the form of people who are close to you in every way in your life but they do not share your faith as a Christian. So when you make those big life decisions, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, and you do that not on the basis of some kind of solid, comprehensive cost-benefits analysis, but on the basis of how you sense God is leading you, or how you you feel uh, it is the most honoring to God, those people might judge you as deluded, irrational, or just downright dumb. And they might not even verbalize it, right? But you can sense it through their body language or maybe even from a withdrawal of relationship. And that burns, right? Because they are close to you and you do very much value their opinion or even want to please them. So persecution will come from those around us. And unfortunately, persecution persecution does not just end with the people around us. The reality is that even when the people around us are not persecuting us we are still facing persecution because our own flesh is persecuting us. Galatians 5:17 says for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Which means that even though your spirit is renewed in Christ. Your flesh still contains sinful desires that lead you to sin. And so your flesh and your, and your spirit will be at war until the end of time, until you are fully sanctified and you sin no more. But until then, your sinful flesh will persecute your Christian spirit, endlessly circling and jabbing at you, screaming at you to give up this internal struggle within yourself and to indulge the sinfulness that lurks in your flesh. And if we were to return to our previous examples of persecution, our flesh would be persecuting us in those situations too, so that we will cave in and close one eye at the dishonest industry practice to get ahead, so that we will submit to the fashionable sexual ethics of our time to feel accepted, so that we will please the people that we love instead of honoring God with our lives. So forgive me if I seem a little melodramatic, but it's a bit like the scenes from the Kung Fu movies that we've watched where the grandmaster tells a prodigy that his greatest enemy is himself. Or those movies about spies and undercover moles. The point is the danger can lie within, and it can be unnoticed until the damage is done. Which is why sometimes the most painful or dangerous form of persecution to our faith Can be this persecution that comes from our own flesh. When we feel like giving up our faith, because we are tired of that that struggle that nobody else seems to see, of being at war with our own souls. Because we feel like we are done with God and his demands on our lives. So I hope you have been tracking with me. I have said that God will protect us as as we face persecution in living out his call over our lives, just as he protected Paul. So at this point, you might be thinking, yes, God protected Paul, but how do I trust that he will protect me in my situation too? You know, maybe my persecutions are too minor and worthless to warrant God's proper attention. Because God has already shown you that there is nothing that is good that he could possibly want to withhold from you out of stinginess or ill will. When he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins, he already paid for us the most exorbitant price he could ever pay for our protection. Any other payment would be chum change. It's a bit like this. Imagine that the baby of the richest man in, on earth in history is kidnapped And then held to ransom. And now imagine that he has gotten his baby back by paying uh, his entire fortune. And he's now joyfully tucking his baby into bed. He's lovingly patting the baby, he's singing lullabies. And then a mosquito appears, buzzing and landing on the cheek of the baby. Would a man just watch that mosquito? and let the mosquito sting his baby, would he say, well, you have already been in so much trouble, and you've already cost me so much. Ah, I don't think I want to protect you anymore from this uh, uh, mosquito. I don't want to, to protect you from anything else. No, he would not. He would, once more, rise to protect the baby that he loves. He would be careful not to just recklessly smack the mosquito on the baby's cheek even, right? He would take the care and the effort to chase it off the baby's face and then only smash it so that no harm would befall his baby. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart of our Heavenly Father. You are that precious baby that he gave everything for. And there is nothing that is for our good that he would withhold from us. There is no effort too big for him to master for us. And we can say that with even more confidence when we see the circumstances of how Christ died for us. And I'm not even talking about the physical pain of his broken body and his poured blood. I'm talking about how Christ went to die for us, even though we were the ones who fully deserved to suffer for our sin. He was not saving innocent, gentle spirits, but spiteful, malicious sinners in an unjustifiable way unjustifiable rebellion against a holy, righteous God. A rebellion that would have condemned us more than justifiably. And condemnation not due to some kind of injustice done to us, but the consequences of our own choice and our own doing. But still, he saved us. Put another way, we might be doubting that God will protect us because we fail to see how he has already protected us and our ultimate assurance of protection is not even from how God protected Paul, but from how Christ has protected us from the greatest danger of our own sin when he went to the cross for us. That is the guarantee of God's protection for us. If he has protected us from the consequences of our sin, eternal death and suffering, what other protection would he want to withhold from us The gospel is the greatest assurance of His protection as we live out His call. So I pray that God will convict our hearts of His protection. Now to my third point. God's protection is the protection we need. Now, but let's be alive, right, to the reality that the protection that God provides might not be an exact match or even a close match to the protection that we would want for ourselves. For example, imagine again that you were poor. What sort of protection would you have wanted? Well, for starters, instead of being uh, struck at the mouth by Ananias and publicly humiliated in that way, I would have wanted Ananias to be bound and struck at my order instead. And instead of being locked in some desolate Roman barracks, I would have wanted to be protected in a comfy villa with servants to feed me grapes and fan me with giant palm leaves Uh, accompanied by a nice chalice of uh, fine Roman wine. Plainly, the protection afforded by God can be very different from what we would like it to be. And because of that, we might be discouraged and we think that God is withholding His goodness from us. But as we saw earlier, that cannot be true as there is no price that God would not pay for us, which means that God must have some other purpose and reason and that is for our own good and for our own flourishing. Now, as you try to think about this and try to grapple with that, it's probably helpful to acknowledge that God's purpose and reason here might be difficult for us to accept here and now. But it is eternally loving and true. It's kind of like this. Think of your schooling days when you had a very tough and demanding teacher always on your back, always pushing you to work harder, At the time, you could not understand it, right? In fact, you might have even hated that teacher. But when you look back now, you see that this was the teacher that truly cared, who was willing to sacrifice time and energy for you beyond the call of duty. And now you understand it was for your flourishing. So with the kind of heart towards God's purpose and reason, let's try to understand why God's protection might not be what we want it to look like. And to be clear, I don't purport to be able to definitively answer this question for all time and that you, whenever this question arises, you say, oh, you tell your friend, go listen to uh, Winston. No, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, right? But I do hope to be able to show us, to begin to show us God's heart in this and that he has good reasons why reasons that are for our flourishing and to encourage us not to withdraw but to press into him to show us more of himself in this area. So having said that, I would suggest to us that one reason why is because, as we saw, God's protection is tied to his call over our lives, which means that it may not always lead to our comfort. So in that sense, God's protection might not look the way we want it to be Because God does want us to go through suffering. It's not for his own entertainment, but it's for our own flourishing. How so? Think about parents. As a parent, maybe I see many of us here are parents. Um, As a parent, you don't deliver your child from all suffering. In fact, you intentionally let them go through suffering so that they grow and become stronger. For example, as they are learning to ride a bike or rollerblade, you can see that they are going to fall. But you might not necessarily, necessarily rush in to catch them. And you might well let them fall so that they learn how to break their fall. And it's a calculated risk because you had already padded them up, you already put a helmet on their head. Yes, they are still going to be hurt, but it's not going to be something that they cannot take. Or like a kid being bullied on the playground. As a parent, you may not always step in. You kind of let them go through the pain of conflict or even being roughed up a bit, right? So that they learn how to handle themselves in the situation. But you will be there, and you will step in, and you will protect when you have to. So in a similar way, God's protection is to let us go through the suffering that will lead to our flourishing, And yet sometimes, God's protection might not be to help you to avoid suffering, but to help you to take the suffering that you're going to have to take. And the reason for that could vary. For example, you might have done something wrong, and justice does indeed require that you suffer the consequences of what you have done. So the suffering is unavoidable, and it is right that you take it. So if in those circumstances, even though the protection that you might be seeking is to avoid the justice, it is right that you take the blow. And so God's protection would not be to help you to avoid the blow completely, but to strengthen you to be able to take that blow well and grow from it. Or it could be that God is letting you take the blow so that you learn or grow from it to become stronger. It's a bit like the quote that I think has been uh, attributed to Bruce Lee. Do not pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. The point is that God's protection may not look the way you want because he wants you to grow and flourish. And in his eternal wisdom, he has to protect you in the way that you need and not the way that you want. And so if we revisit again our earlier examples of persecution from the people around us as we live out God's call, That might be how God protects us. Not necessarily to cause your career to blossom because you feared God, but to be able to strengthen you to take the blow of suffering in your career because you did fear God. Not necessarily that the people that you care about will respect and approve of you uh, for your Christian sexual ethics and for following God's leading, but to strengthen you so that you can remain loving and cheerful even as you suffer their judgment and withdrawal of relationship or living out God's call over your life. And what about the persecution that comes from within our own flesh? Perhaps the amazing thing here is that God sees everything. And because he sees everything, he can protect us from that persecution within us as well. As Hebrews 12 tells us, Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. This sense chills down my spine, It makes my flesh tingle, in a good way. It never gets old, because it tells me what started and what is going to complete us. Or rather, who started us and who completes us. It tells me that even when we feel like we are going to give up on our faith, as we tire in this seemingly endless struggle against our flesh, And even though God is not going to remove that struggle in the here and now, we can trust in our Saviour to keep us in Him till the end, whatever might come our way. In the end, the point is this. God protects us to live out His call for our lives, not for our own purposes. But we can trust that it is for our ultimate good and flourishing because there is nothing that is good for us that He will withhold from us. And he demonstrated that for all eternity when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment for our sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our God and that you are a God who did not just save us, but you also protect us. We pray that you will help us to look to you when we feel persecuted, when we feel like giving up on the struggle that rages within us. Help us to trust that you are for us in every way even when we are not able to fully understand your plans. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.